been in a series on worship, and I feel that this series is very, very appropriate, especially in a time like this. We're coming out of our series on deception in the church, and we've looked at briefly at uh, discipleship, and now we're looking at probably one of the most important subjects for you as a child of God to understand, and especially to understand worship, biblically speaking, because there's a lot out there that is now being sold as worship, being sold as praise, being sold as thanksgiving, but it's not. And what I'm gonna be doing as I start off the series is I'm gonna be doing two sermons on, and, and laying a foundation on what this series is all about. And so in my sermon today, I'll be talking about, just give you a brief introduction, and then I'll be saying, uh, talking about worship as an attitude and worship as a lifestyle. And next week, I'll be talking about worship as holiness, relating to God's holiness. You'll be looking at, we'll be looking at characteristics of a worshiper, those that worship the Lord, worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then we'll be looking at protocols of entering into the presence of God as worshipers as we go on into the series. So it's very appropriate. One of the things I want to share with you guys as LifeHouse people is, specifically LifeHouse people, not the people that listen in podcast is that you need to subscribe to the podcast because a lot of material is going up that has not been preached over the pulpit. So there might be additional stuff that gets put in. Uh, for example, the Deception in the Church series is currently still going on. And you've already had two series subsequent to that, so you need to download those podcasts. I'm gonna be reading to you a section out of this book called Spiritual Avalanche. Carolyn has already read some parts of it to you by a man called Steve Hill. Uh, and it's the threat of false teachings that, dis- that are- could destroy millions, spiritual avalanche. <clears throat> as a church, how attractive do we have to be? As saints search for the perfect church, today's pastors, today's pastor is under tremendous pressure to cater more and more to prickly parishioners. Facing declining attendance and a dwindling bank account, the spiritual leader comes to the conclusion that much prayer is not the only answer to his woes. If he is going to be successful, he must look to others who have found success that has eluded him. He signs up for the latest conference put on by a local megachurch in the hopes of learning the techniques that are guaranteed to work. He attends as many workshops and sessions as he can, taking careful notes on everything. It doesn't take long for this pastor to realize that the teachings center more on sound business practices rather than on spiritual and biblical principles. Of course, everything is packaged with just the right amount of religious talk to give the pretense of being spiritual, but the core of the teaching is born in the soul. Deep in his spirit, the man of God senses something is off but quickly rationalizes it away, believing that the end justifies the means. He tells himself, we will reach more people, win more souls, and do more for the community. Valid desires, no doubt. The temptation has reached a fever pitch. Now he will finish in the flesh what was started in the spirit. At this precise moment, the snow begins to fall. It doesn't take long for the next layer and the next and the next. They pile up. This is the precursor of a devastating avalanche. The pastor comes home and immediately gets to work implementing the new programs and philosophies he has acquired. It's as easy as one, two, three. Set the atmosphere, 
provide ample amenities and adjust the message. One of the teachings at a local conference was never let Sunday morning crowd know what you believe. Let me paraphrase. Just let it snow, make sure they enjoy themselves so they'll come back. Let, let's complete our picture of the modern day church. The pastor and his associates waste no time getting to work on creating a proper atmosphere. Guests must be welcomed to a warm and friendly environment that sets them at ease. Religious items must go so that seekers are not immediately turned off to offensive images. A portrait of Jesus on the cross and another of Jesus washing the disciples' feet are taken down and replaced with abstract art. Counters that once showcased missions and evangelism are thrown out to make room for barista tables. A few coats of paint, new furnishings, and so the entrance of the church rivals a local coffee house. Members are ecstatic as they can now fill up on the tasty pastries and sip cappuccinos from the comfort of an easy chair before, during, and after the service. Ah, the perfect resort. The foyer has just, uh, was just the first step in setting the right atmosphere. The worship team is now coached to the next level. The service is rehearsed several times to nail down every second so that not at time, not, not to waste a moment. The worship experience might kick off with a secular song off the pop charts. Yes, this does happen. This brings the congregation together and sets the tone for the service. The next two songs are fully rocked out versions of the latest worship album, complete with high energy lighting and just the right amount of fog. The set completes with a touching yet a worshipful melody that claims, calms even the most hardened hearts. Skillfully, the worship leader brings the audience into a moment of prayer with their eyes closed and hands uplifted. It creates a moment for the stage to be cleared and fully reset for the message. It's a perfect executed experience that tickles the soul, yet fills, fails to touch the spirit. The feedback is immediate and positive. The congregation loves the worship the church provides. Let's have a look at this.
After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven like someone, with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were the 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of, of light, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. They were the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they, covered the, with, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third was, had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around and even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They laid their crowns before the throne and said, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have there been. For those people who are on the podcast listening, I gave a six, a, a, an eight-minute DVD series on various different church services introducing these type of songs, as secular songs, to their, to their congregations as they worship. One of them was ACDC's Highway to Hell. Highway to Hell, living easy, loving free. Season ticket on a one-way ride. Asking nothing, leave me be. Taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme. Ain't nothing that I'd rather do. Going down, party time. My friends are gonna be there too. I'm on a highway to hell. No stop signs, speed limit. Nobody's gonna slow me down. Like a wheel, gonna spin it. Nobody's gonna mess me around. Hey, Satan, pain my Jews. Playing in a rock and roll band, hey mama, look at me. I'm on the way to the promised land. I'm on a highway to hell. In my mind, I, there were so many different video clips I could have shown you. I could have shown you the clip of the wrecking ball with Miley Cyrus where she's naked on a wrecking ball and, 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 a, and a girl singing that same, core, same song in a worship service. In my mind, as a pastor leading a church and leading people into the very throne room of God. I cannot fathom, I cannot understand, I cannot even see any valid reason why you would open a worship service giving glory to Satan and his works and thinking you're gonna make people feel more comfortable in connecting to God after that. You've just opened those people up to the spirit realm of the devil. So you're getting some unsafe person coming in and he's connecting, you want him to connect to God, you've, you've, you've first off, before anything has happened, you've directly connected him to the demonic spirits of darkness and they've already blocked his ears because that's the first song 
that you've given to him, an anthem of the devil of people willingly and wantingly to walk into hell. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk to you about what, what the Bible says about worship. And uh, I'm going to give you a whole lot of scriptures as we go into my first one of three points and just give you a brief biblical introduction to my concept of what worship is. In Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 3, in the NIV version of the Bible, we have what, we, what I feel is one of our key theme passages of Scripture relating to Lifehouse Church. This is, this is essentially our mission. This is the mission of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something. I've said that this is worship. All right? So I've given you Revelation chapter four. I've read that to you, and I've shown you in Revelation four what it's gonna look like in heaven one day when we stand before God's throne. So what we're gonna do here is we're gonna look at Isaiah 61 verses one to three, and for you I'm saying that this, to me, is worship as well. Let me read it to you. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and the release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That to me is worship. In the Amplified Version, verse three, I want us to have a look at that and just go into some of the words a little bit more deeply. To grant consolation and joy to those who mourn in Zion, to give them an ornament, a garland or a diadem of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment expressive of praise instead of a heavy burden and failing spirits that they may be called oaks of righteousness, lofty, strong, magnificent, distinguished for uprightness, justice, and right standing with God, the planting of God, that he may be glorified. Essentially, over the next few weeks, as, you, as, as we go into the subject uh, with each different speaker coming up, you're gonna be looking, they're gonna be looking at the essential components that make up worship, thanksgiving, praise, and worship. And the, and the next slide that I'm gonna show you now, this is something that you need to get into you. This is something that you need to memorize. And I wanna share something with you before I look, look at the, that, that slide there. I wanna say this, that what we need to be slowly doing is becoming more and more comfortable being in the presence of God. There's a bird flying around. Okay. <laughs> For the podcast, we've got a bird flying around in the, in the hall here, so it's going crazy. Right, let's try and ignore him. I hope he doesn't break his neck. Okay, so concerning you beginning to become more and more comfortable entering into God's presence, you, you, know, I'm, I'm, you, you need to be get, begin to understand the various aspects of thanksgiving, praise, and worship. So concerning thanksgiving, when we, when we relate to God, there are three attributes that we relate to. When we begin to 
give thanksgiving, when we give, begin to give praise, when we begin to give worship, we begin to relate to the nature of God. So thanksgiving, we relate to God's goodness. Praise, relate to God's greatness. And worship, relate to God's holiness. Now here's something you need to understand and I'm probably gonna touch on this next week. It's easy for us to give thanks because around us, here and there, we can see goodness. We can see it being established. We can see goodness, we can relate to goodness. And so when we look at God and we know that God is good, we can relate to him in that way and we can give thanks. With regards to greatness and praise, praise relates to God's greatness. We see greatness around us. And so for us, it's easy to begin to relate to greatness. So we can praise God for he's great. He's mighty, he's wonderful. The problem we have with worship is on earth, there is nothing holy. There is nothing in your life that you can equate and describe as holy because only God is holy. And so there's no equivalent within your life, within the church, within humanity, on the planet, in nature, nowhere on earth can you relate to God's holiness. And so that is probably one of the most difficult things that we need to, to, to look at and, and begin to understand with regards to worshiping God. So thanksgiving relates to God's goodness, praise relates to God's greatness, and worship relates to God's holiness. Now, if we go to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter six, we have a phenomenal passage of scripture, one of the, most, one of the best ones that I enjoy in terms of relating to holy uh, worship. And it's Isaiah six, verses one to three. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now that passage of scripture relates to Revelation chapter four, verse eight to 11, which I've just previously read to you, where the four living creatures, we see a description of the four living creatures, and we see what the four living creatures do in Revelation chapter four, and how they are singing and how they are flying before the throne of God. Now, in the Amplified Version, slide eight, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, each covered his own face, with two, each covered his feet, and with two, each flew, and they cried one to another. Now, what the way, when I look at that, what I see taking place is the act of worship that these angels were expressing physically was when the wings covered the face with a bowed head, that was an act of worship. Where the wings covered the feet, that was an act of worship. And the two flying wings, for me, if I look at that, that's an act of service. So for me, worship is more important than service. Often in modern times, we have service rather than worship. But we've got to reverse that. We've got to start thinking differently. Worship is twice as important in our lives as services. 
And that to me is one of the most beautiful pictures I can see and, and, and how I can try and relate to the holiness of God is when I see the behavior of these mighty angels in God's presence and what they did. Covering their face, we call worship. Flying, we call service. And so worship is twice as more important than service. Now that's just a very, very brief introduction to sort of my understanding and my, my concept of what worship is. The second point I wanna share with you tonight as we open up and introduce the subject is that worship is an attitude. This section that I'm gonna give to you now and the next section I'm gonna give to you now, you're really gonna have to understand this and begin to apply this to your life because it's gonna start to change your concept of what worship is. You see, worship is not on a Sunday, arriving at church and singing a thanksgiving chorus, a praise chorus, and a worshipful chorus. If you think that's worship, you're mistaken. Because the first thing I need to tell you about worship is worship is an attitude. Worship is an attitude. Now what is an attitude? An attitude is a mental viewpoint. An attitude is a disposition. An attitude is a position of the body that basically indicates how I'm feeling emotionally or, or, or uh, it, what my mood is. Now here's the warning I have to give you with regards to this. You must make sure that you only worship God. Okay? You have to make sure of that. Because whatever you worship that possesses you. And I'm, I'm using possession in the word that it, in its context. It will take control over your life. So if you are worshiping God, God is gonna take control of your life. Now the progressives and the ungodly people hate to hear that. If you are worshiping an addiction and the means of fulfilling that addiction, whether it be drugs, alcohol, sex, or whatever, pornography, that will control your life and you will become a slave to that which you are worshiping. And so worship is an attitude. It's a disposition, it is a mental view. And whatever you worship, you've gotta get this into your spirit, whatever you worship, that is what is gonna control you. That is what's gonna master you. Now, another thing about worship, and this is what you need to put in the back of your head, and this is why God throughout the Old Testament and New Testament speaks so vehemently against idolatry, is that worship only belongs to God. And because it's the only thing that God reserves for himself, Satan is the one person that's trying to get it and he will throw everything in your path to get you to worship whatever is not of God because ultimately if you're worshiping something that is not of God, you will ultimately begin to worship him and he will begin to control you because whatever you worship, that is gonna control you. Worship belongs uniquely to God. Now, here's, listen to this. The more you worship God, the closer you come to what you were originally created to be. The less you worship God, the further away from your function you walk 
and the more under, under control of the devil you become. Before you offer service to God, you've got to offer worship. And worship is not coming to church on a Sunday, singing a few choruses. This leads me to my third point. So, worship is an attitude, okay? It's, a, it's an attitude, it's a disposition, it's, it's everything that I am, it's how I, it's how I am, it's, it's the way of life for me. My third point is worship is primarily my lifestyle. I'm gonna be talking to you about two verses of scripture, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. And we're gonna go into them a little bit and dig around a little bit. The first passage of scripture I'm gonna to talk to you about is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. I'm reading out of the Amplified Version. All has been heard, the end of the matter, and, the, and the, the end of the matter is, fear God, revere and worship him, knowing that he is, and keep his commandments. For this is the whole of, uh, for this is the whole of man, the full original purpose of his creation, the object of God's providence, the root of character, the foundation of all happiness, the adjustment to all inharmonious circumstances and conditions under the sun, the whole, and the whole duty for every man. Solomon is, Solomon is an interesting character. He inherits the throne of, of his father David and he builds the temple of Solomon. And God comes to him and says to him, ask me anything, I'll give it to you. And, and Solomon somehow or other asks the one thing that activates God's heart for everything. And Solomon says to God, I want you to give me wisdom so that I can rule your people well. And God says, because you asked for this, I will give you everything. Now, I don't know why Solomon went off the rails, but sexually, he went off the rails and, you know, he had women from every corner of the world that were in his harem and he, when they came in, they brought in all their different gods. And he must have been dabbling in all kinds of little things with these women. Their gods, their philosophies, their ideologies, their idolatry and their practices. And so for me, when I read the book of Ecclesiastes, I look at the book of Ecclesiastes in two ways. One, it's a very, very depressing book. And the other one, it's a very, very illuminating book. If I'm a worldly person, I read the book of Ecclesiastes, or if I'm doing pastoral counseling and someone comes to me with a depression or is suicidal, that's definitely not the book I'm gonna give them to read. <laughs> because at the end he says, everything sucks. <laughs> you wanna study and get all the degrees you want? It's a waste of time. You wanna party all night and have, have, have every need and want of your life met? It's a waste of time. You want to become the greatest workaholic the world has ever known? It's a waste of time. So if you're a depressive person, don't read the book of Ecclesiastes. But if you're a worshiper of God, it's probably one of the greatest illuminating books that you will read. Because here, at the end of life, at the end of the day, when I'm about to breathe my last breath, when all is said and done, only two things matter when I stand before God. That's it. Only two things are gonna matter. 
according to the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God, do what he says. End of story. Now that, in a nutshell, is worship. That is worship. Postmodernists is gonna go nuts. I'm not here to please God. I'm not here to fulfill God's commands. Yes, you are. You are created by God. No matter what the devil's trying to do to uncreate you or to move you away from God, you were created by God to worship him and then do what he says. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 in the NIV version. Now all has been heard. So he's gone in and he studied everything and now he comes to the conclusion of the matter. Here is the conclusion of the matter, Solomon says. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the full duty of all mankind. What is fear? It's reverential worship, trust, and obedience. And it is due to God. You're not asked, you're not encouraged, you're not persuaded. It is your duty to fear God, period. Why? Because he's holy. That's worship. So we should actually begin to follow Solomon's wise counsel and begin to enjoy life because here's the secret of life. The more I worship, the more centered I become with the purpose of God in my life. The less I worship, the less uncentered I become and out of whack I become. The more I push into worship, the more it opens up God's blessings on my life. The better my life becomes in relation to, with, with God. And so a lifestyle of worship is a lifestyle of worship and obedience. It's a lifestyle of coming before God, acknowledging who he is, fearing him, trusting him, revering him, and then going out to serve him. Worship, service. If you go home and you read Proverbs chapter one, to, uh, ch chapter one verses one to seven, and you go home and read Proverbs chapter two verses one to fifteen, you will see Solomon bringing that into his Proverbs. Now, Proverbs are an interesting book because virtually each proverb has a double layer of meaning. The one layer of meaning will be to the physical life, and then the second layer of meaning will be to your spiritual life. Go and read that and see how central worship is. The lifestyle of worship is. To, to the believer at that point in time. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, fear God and, do, do, uh, and obey God. That is what worship is. Let's move on into the New Testament and deal with the second passage of scripture that I was gonna give to you, and that is Romans chapter 12, verse one to two. Again, I'm reading out of the Amplified Version. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, beg you in view of all God, the mercies of God to make a decisive dedica dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, this age, fashioned after and adopted to his external superficial customs, but be transformed, changed by the entire renewal of your mind by its new ideals and its new attitudes so that you may prove for yourselves what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, even the, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. Now, when Paul writes his books or his letters, generally his books and letters are, are, are divided into two sections. The first section 
is theological and the second section is a practical application of what he's just taught you. Romans is exactly the same. So in the book of Romans, if you read Romans chapter one to 11, Paul is writing about what God has done on your behalf. Okay, this is God, this is what he's doing, this is his actions, and this is what he's doing on your behalf. So from chapter 12 to about 15, to chapter 15 and 16, Paul is now writing, because of what God has done, this is what you need to do. So in Romans chapter 12, verse one, guess what the first thing Paul says you have to do? You have to be a worshiper. But notice how he says it. He doesn't say you must now go and sing in church. He says this in the NIV, Romans chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, this is what God has done for you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Fascinating, all right? Now, worship, being in God's presence, results in change. No one can come to me and say, I am a worshiper of God, and I don't see their life change. So verse two of chapter 12, change. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, that his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Worship, service. Fear God, do what he says. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed so that you know what God wants you to do. Worship and behavior is essential. Worship in the presence of God will result in behavioral change within your life as you walk out of the presence of God. Worship is for God alone. But in his presence, the worshiper will be transformed. It cannot not be transformed. It's very easy for a Christian, for me to see a Christian who does not spend time as a worshiper in the presence of God. Now remember what I've said about worship thus far. Worship is an attitude. Worship is a way of life. So worship means I'm completely giving everything I am to God for his use. And so I go into God's presence as a worshiper, God changes me. And that change results in service. That change results in me being able to see fruit of repentance, fruit of change. And so when I'm looking at a person and they come in and saying, hey, I'm a big worshiper, but I don't see change in their marriage. I don't see change in their relationships. I don't see change in their lives. They've not spent time in the presence of God. They cannot do this, Philippians chapter two, verse 12 to 13. Therefore, my dear ones, as you have always obeyed my suggestions, so now not only with enthusiasm you would show me in my presence, but much more because I'm absent, work out your own salvation with reverence 
and awe and trembling. You notice that? A worshiper cannot do that. Now, I mean, a worshiper can do that, but a person that does not spend his time in worship cannot do that. So Paul's teachings will always reflect this. Whichever book you go into, for example, in the book of Ephesians chapter four, verse 17 to 24, we see what Paul has to say here. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened, and so he goes on. This, however, is not the way of life for you. You cannot be a worshiper and you cannot tell me that you're in the presence of God and still have associations and connections and behaviors that are related to the worldly behavior. Romans chapter six, verse 13 to 19. Do not offer any part of your body to sin as an instrument of wickedness. This passage of scripture here actually knocks out the antinomianisms that's suddenly creeping into the church today. Grace, grace, grace. You can do anything you want, just, you know, keep doing it because Jesus has done it, uh, forgiven you already. Here it talks about being a slave to righteousness. You've got to start to understand, as a worshiper, I am a slave to God. I do what he says. There's the scripture, fully clearly for you to see. Just remember this. And this is what saddens me when I see all that's taking place out there in the churches and when I see the video clips of those people going to churches like that. If you get exposed to false worship, okay, that false worship is gonna expose you to corruption. That corruption is gonna expose you to self-deception. That self-deception is gonna result in you being sent to deception. That's how dangerous this stuff is. And this is what is happening to a lot of people out there in the church. They're being exposed to a false concept of worship. So when they're worshiping and it's not God, corruption comes into their life because there's no change for being in the presence of God. And because corruption has come into their life, they will now begin to justify the corruption there. And because they begin to justify the corruption, what happens is after being warned and warned and warned by God to change, to turn, to come to him, to not have idols, he will eventually send them a delusion. And you can read about, you can hear about that in the deception series that I've just been finishing uh, uploading. Romans chapter 125, they exchange the truth of God, a truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. And then in verse 28, it says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what they ought not to be done. I'm gonna begin wrapping up now. When the Hebrew person talked about worship, he would always understand it's, it's his whole body. It's my body, my physical body, it's my soul, it's my spirit. He always viewed the whole person. 
So when you start reading about worship in scripture, you've got to understand this. It's not segmented. It's not compartmentalized. It's your whole life. In the Old Testament, the Jewish priests, before they would go on duty, would have to sanctify themselves and separate themselves so that they can be worthy to go into the presence of God, to go into the temple of God and to perform their duties. The problem was that the more they strayed from God, corruption came in, idolatry came in, self-deception came in, and eventually God would send a prophet to go and warn them. Here is such a warning. And what we're gonna do now is, is I want us to, we're gonna break, break bread right now and, have, and, and, and share the table of the Lord together. And as I'm reading this and explaining this to you, I want you to begin to, under, I want you to, begin to just examine your own life and come before the Lord because this is a table of the Lord that is to remind us, one, of what Jesus has done and two, what is our response? Just like virtually every New Testament book that Paul wrote, this is what God did, now what are you gonna do in response? And this is the communion table now right now. It's, it's, it's a table of this is what God did for you. What are you gonna do in response? Is your whole life separated to worship? Or are there segments that are still isolated and walled off that you're keeping apart? And as I'm going through this scripture, and then as I read to you out of Corinthians, and we hand out the bread and the wine, I want you just to examine your own heart right now. I want you to come before the Lord yourself. I want you to say, Lord, I wanna deal with these issues. I want to be a full worshiper, a complete worshiper. I want to come before you and worship you in spirit and truth. I want to connect with your holiness. I want to worship you because you are holy. So in the book of Malachi chapter 1 verse 8 to 13, he writes to them and the Lord speaks to, to the people through the prophet, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame and diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offer them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would, you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I, have, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great amongst the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you, you profane, profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously says the Lord Almighty. When you bring the injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? And this is the same for us today. We are priests. We are called as a kingdom of priests. And so we need to come and present ourselves before the Lord. What is our sacrifice of worship? 
I'm gonna call Paul and John just to hand out the communion. And I just wanna speak to you about Romans chapter 12, verse one to two, and then we'll take bread together. We've gotta begin to understand that our whole life needs to be given over. And we need to be separated from sin to God, just like I showed you that scripture about becoming slaves of righteousness and not slaves to sin. This is the essence of holiness, separation. And here tonight, you can begin the process of separation. You can begin the process of saying, Lord, I wanna separate from this behavior. I wanna separate from this sin. Worship is to take everything you have, is to take your body, is to take your family, it's to take your tasks, is to take your gifts, it's to take what you do every single day at work, at school, at university, and is to present it to God as an act of worship. It is a lifestyle. Romans chapter 12, verse one to two, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your true and proper worship. That word worship has an interesting history. It's service rendered for hire, it's the service and worship of God according to the requirements of Levitical law, and it also means to perform sacred and religious services. Now the history of that word, the story of that word, originally meant to work for money. You're an employee, that's that act of worship. And it was used as a, a man giving his time, energy and effort to someone else so that he could work for that person and he would get pay back. It's not slavery. It's a voluntary undertaking. And slowly but surely it, become, it came to mean uh, a man giving his whole life. So the, the evolving of that word came to mean a man giving his whole life. So it would be like a man giving his whole life to the arts. That's where, it would, that's where it came to be. And then within the church, its fullest sense came to one who dedicates his whole life to the service of God. Tonight, as you've got bread and you've got the wine, I want you just a moment just to bow your head and... Just remember what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did for you. When you were God's enemy, sinner, condemned, he came down, he paid the price, and he opened the way up for you to go to heaven, and that's your choice. I'm gonna choose that path, I'm not gonna choose that path. And that's what this table means from God's side. From your side, you come to the other side of this table and you say, Lord, I receive what you give me. But here's what I'm giving you. 
I want you to spend a few moments speaking to the Lord and telling him what you are prepared to give him. Father, as we come before your presence right now, we just wanna give thanks for what you did for us on Calvary's cross. We wanna thank you, Lord, that you unreservedly paid the penalty of our sins to open up a path to the Father. And Father, as we stand at this communion table, we receive, Lord, your gift. We receive your strength, we receive your forgiveness. But also at this table, Lord, we pray for strength to become true worshipers, a people that will worship you in spirit and in truth. So Lord, we just partake of the bread right now in Jesus' name.